If being mean to yourself helped you achieve your goals, you should have everything you want by now. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Ahoy, my dear shit shows. For any new listeners, my name is Andrea. I'm a recovering shit show. And here is my abridged story. Uh, Only child, alcoholic mom, emotionally unavailable workaholic dad, found out my mom was an alcoholic when I was seven, was subsequently emotionally parentified. I became the scapegoat slash identified patient in my family at the age of nine. I started drinking at 12. I became the uh, the school slut and the girl that no one was allowed to be friends with at the age of 13. At the age of 14, I got sent to rehab for the first time. Uh, I spent the next five years in and out of rehabs and boarding schools. I became a daily drinker at 16, an around-the-clock drinker at 18, and then I got sober at 19. And my life improved in every area except for one, in romantic relationships. I had a broken-ass picker. Uh, I couldn't figure out what the hell was wrong with me. At nine years sober, after dating two alcoholics named Brian back-to-back, I figured out what the hell was wrong with me, that my childhood had impacted me a whole hell lot of a lot more than I thought it had, and that I was an adult child. Now, I had always known that my childhood had impacted me. I had no idea that it had impacted me so severely, and I had no damn clue that uh, what I had experienced was trauma. Part of hitting that bottom, too, was the realization that I had been selling myself short in life from a career perspective. Not once had I truly considered what a fulfilling career would look like. I was a a CPA at the time. (laughs) And so not only did I embark on this journey to heal from my childhood, but I also embarked on this journey to figure out why the fuck I was put on this earth. And that was a a several year journey of many divinely inspired uh, interactions in which I learned that my superpower is my vulnerability, my authenticity, and my ability to make others feel comfortable being vulnerable and authentic as well. And so a little over two years ago, I started this podcast on the floor of my closet next to my cat's litter box, hunched over like Quasimodo. (laughs) And I remained on the floor, hunched over like Quasimodo for way too long. Um, And here we are. There's so much more to that story. And um, I highly recommend that you go back to the beginning of the podcast. I can actually, I'll put in the show notes certain episodes where you hear certain parts of my story. Please go listen. You will enjoy this podcast a lot more if you know my shit show story. So today we are joined by returning guest, friend of the pod, Laura K. Connell. She is a trauma-informed coach and author, and she just recently came out with her, her first book, which is titled, which is perfect for all of us, It's Not Your Fault, The Subconscious Reasons We Self-Sabotage and How to Stop. I know none of us can relate. So we're talking about a whole bunch of good shit, and I also will put the link to Laura's first appearance on the podcast in the show notes, because that's when she goes into um, her story in in more depth. So time for an Andrea self-sabotage procrastination journey update. Okay. (laughs) This actually just happened like 45 minutes ago. So where do I want to start? Um, I'll start here. It is 12.07 on Tuesday. So these episodes get released on Wednesdays at 6 a.m. Eastern time. And uh, me recording at noon on a Tuesday. Uh, this is this is really early for me, guys. <laughs> and I've shared about this, about how I really procrastinate in, um, in getting these episodes done. And so I was standing in the kitchen earlier and I was, you know, I was planning on recording this earlier today. I'm like, come on, girl, like, let's get this together. And I was thinking about last week and what happened. So it was probably around, I don't know, five o'clock, 5 p.m. on Tuesday. And I was about to like sit down and record. And then all of a sudden I was like, I really need to create some social media content. And I spend the next several hours working on a social media video, getting nowhere, (laughs) creating nothing. Uh, 
And really what I was doing was I was trying to distract myself from from sitting and recording. And so I finally get around to to recording the episode. It's like super freaking late. And it was not, I just went back and checked my WhatsApp. It was not until 1.30 a.m. So mind you, that is uh, four and a half hours before the episode is released that I sent everything to my assistant to have her put everything together. Okay. (laughs) So I'm standing in the kitchen today and I'm thinking about how I'm going to record this soon. And I start kind of going into like a trauma response. Like I start going into fear. And so I'm like, what is this about? Like, what am I experiencing? And what it is, is that I have this preconceived notion that this is going to be hard that I'm going to sit down to record or I'm standing up, I'm going to stand up to record and it's going to be a struggle and I'm not going to know what to say or I'm going to flub my words or I'm not going to have anything good to say. And the next thought that came to me is like how this is not based in reality at all and how I have done this part. I've done this talking part in the beginning of an episode. This is my 131st episode, I believe. So I've done this quite a few times. And then the next thought was, you were born to do this job. Like you, this is your natural skill set. Like you were born to, to talk. You were born to be a podcast host. What the hell is wrong with you? Why do you feel like this is going to be hard when that is not based in reality? And why do you do this to yourself? Like, why do you torture yourself? Like, this is not rational. Get it together, girl. So then I sit down to do some breath work. I've been trying to do this 10-minute um, breath work YouTube video every morning. And as I'm doing the breath work, I realize what the hell I'm doing. I'm shaming the shit out of myself, right? And I'm not showing myself compassion. I'm shaming this part of myself that thinks that it is protecting me in some way. And so then I started to think, like, what does this part think that it's protecting me from? And what came to me is abandonment. Like it is preventing me from being abandoned. It thinks that if I uh, don't say the right thing or if the like if I'm not profound, that all of you guys are going to decide that you don't like me anymore and that you don't want to listen to the podcast ever ever again, <laughs> and that my um and that my life is going to be over and I'm going to die right. <laughs> um, and it comes from a place of like. Mm, who I am at my core is not good enough and that uh, you're only going to like me if I, I don't know, like if I have something to offer you. I mean, at the same time, like you're not going to listen to a podcast if if this is like a shit, like if I don't have shit, like, you know, if I suck, if I don't <laughs> I sound crazy. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, it's it's not rooted in reality. This is what I was born to do. Um, This is my gift. And so as soon as I finished uh, the breath work, I closed my eyes and I imagined this part of me that is trying to protect me from abandonment. And And I told it, I said, you know, thank you for trying to protect me. And I know what you're doing is coming from a place of love, but I don't need you to do this anymore for me. And then I imagined my inner child and I told her that, um, that there's nothing wrong with her, that she is perfectly likable and lovable just the way that she is, that she's talented, that she's smart, and that she doesn't have to worry about being abandoned because, um, I'm never going to abandon her. And, uh, whew, guys, this stuff is really deep, you know, <sighs> mm is really, really, really deep, isn't it? And uh, I felt better. And then um, I went into the bathroom to blow dry my hair because obviously I had to distract myself a little bit longer and procrastinate before standing up to do this. Um, and, the, and then the fear came back over me, you know, and started to panic again about, about recording this. And oh, again, I was just like, it's okay. Like, it's okay. It's really going to be okay. And um, I'm just like really ready to work through these. Like I, I just want to, I just want to work through this shit. You know, I'm, I'm sick of it. And I know that it's, I just have to show this part 
these parts of myself like compassion because they do think that they're protecting me, you know? But it's these parts of me that just keep me small and oh, keep me feeling like a kid. And um, God, I just feel so, again, I feel so damn grateful that I'm getting this opportunity to like, to like work through all this stuff in such, such a public way. Um, I have to share about this because it like reduces the shame, you know? And um, of course, like there's a part of me that's like, wants you to think that I have it all together. Oh God. This is some deep shit. What came to me today is just, and I've said this before, but really what this core wound is that we're all sharing is just that we have been conditioned to have being comfortably uncomfortable as our base operating system. And this shows up in so many areas of our lives, especially through procrastination and, you know, all it does is just kind of reaffirms these limiting beliefs that we hold about ourselves. And this is some tough work, y'all, to work through this, isn't it? This is not for sissies. So going to continue to share. Um, you know, I'd love to hear any feedback from y'all if you can relate to what I'm saying. And again, thank you for, for being here and allowing me this space to to heal and grow. So on that note, <laughs> let's get the damn show on the road. But first, let's talk about why you, yes, you need to damn the join shit show. So this is my online support community where I host four weekly Zoom support groups. This is an app. You can also access it on your phone or sorry, on, on the website. And so other than the groups that I host on the app on this platform, there are a ton of different discussion board threads that we have set up for various topics. So for example, uh, there is a group that is for childhood sexual abuse survivors, and they actually have their own meetings that they host once a week, which is amazing. What they're doing in that group is quite profound. Thank you, Andrew, for all that you do. Uh, we have like other groups like Shit Show Parenting, Healing from Narcissists. We actually just created a, a sub-thread for us neurodivergent ADHD folks. This is such a special community with such special people. Then you should really join it, okay? So I want to give a shout out to the newest members of the community, and I am long overdue for, for saying these names. So thank you, thank you, thank you to... Uh, Jessica, Heather, Coco, Ginger, Lisa, Ashley, Savannah, Ashley, Katie, Jessica, Alyssa, Nikki, Anna, Rebecca, uh, Mika, Heather, Leah. We got two Heathers. We got two Leahs. Aaron, Lori, Loretta, Mary, Chris, Emily, Jesse, Sherry, Dana, Greg, Amy, another Amy, Michael, Robin, Rachel, Taylor, Lori, Todd, and Lindsay. Thank you, thank you, thank you to you fine-ass shit shows. How about the rest of y'all follow suit, okay? Just give it a damn try. You can quit after a month. I think it's worth giving it a go, okay? So see the show notes for the link to join the community. Next, give me a little follow on the Insta, on the TikTok, at Adult Child Pod. And last but not least, please give me a damn five-star rating on Apple and Spotify. It really helps in getting the podcast out to more people. The more reviews the podcast has, the more likely Spotify and Apple are to suggest it to new listeners. So can you please help a gal out? Or can you please help some other shit shows out who need to find the podcast and they're not going to find it because you didn't give me a five-star rating. Okay. Thanks. Love you all. She's back guys. Laura Connell, your episode was like a fan fave. So I'm excited to have you back. Oh, yay. I'm really glad to hear that. And thanks for having me back. I'm honored. I'm so grateful that you have me back on. Thank you. Yeah, your book is so awesome. It's not your fault. Are there other books with that title or did you snag it? You know what's so funny is that, well, I made it up myself because I thought it was so appropriate. And I think that's what makes the book different from other books on self-sabotage because 
I think those other books often kind of say it is your fault or it is your responsibility. <laughs> and so my thing is like, it's not your fault. But then on the same day that my book came out, someone else in the same category, the self-help category, had a book come out called It's Not Your Fault. Really? <laughs> and I don't think it was specifically about self-sabotage, but I was just like smacking my head. I couldn't believe it. And I didn't find out until honestly, like release day. And someone was kind enough to DM me and tell me about it. They're like, hmm, what do you think this means? And someone else released a book on wow. the same day with the same title. Did you look at it? Let's see what it is. I had a quick look and I know it's in the self-help area. It's not the exact same topic though. I think it is to do with childhood trauma though. Yeah, it is. That's so crazy. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah it's amazing. By Alex Howard. I've never heard of him. Are you familiar with him? I wasn't until I found out the about book. the book. <laughs> And then other people say it reminds them of the Goodwill hunting scene. I don't know if you've seen that movie or remember that scene. I've seen it, but I don't remember it. What? Was there a scene with it's, the same book titles? No, it's when Robin oh. Williams says to Matt Damon's character, it's not your fault. And he just keeps repeating it over and over again mm. until it sinks in. And that's sort of his turning point. Yeah, I'm looking. Okay. I've never seen him before. Interesting. Well, yours is better. I haven't even <laughs> read his other one, but yours is better. Thank you. So tell me what you learned about yourself from writing this book. Oh, wow. That's a really big one. So writing this book has been like a three-year journey, but then before that, almost a lifetime. I think the biggest thing I probably learned from writing this book is that I can write a book. And that sounds odd, but part of my trauma response was not being able to stick with big projects. So I would be led astray by the shiny new object. I had a lot of trouble completing long-term goals. And so that, in fact, was the reason why I usually wrote articles or mm -hmm. short stories. I've been a writer my whole adult life, but I would always write shorter things that didn't require me to keep the butt in the seat for months at a time, which writing a book does. I just did not believe I could do it. And that was part of my self-sabotage, right? So the fact that I could go through all the steps of, because writing a book is not just writing a book, it's writing a book proposal, it's finding yep. an agent, it's going to writing conferences, it's pitching your idea, it's getting the publisher, all these things take at least a year. That's what it took for me. And so that was probably the biggest thing I learned is that I actually can do something long-term like writing a book. And that was pretty huge. So it's been kind of a dream come true to write a book that's traditionally published as well. And it's been, like I said, a three-year journey. So honestly, aside from all the obvious like self-healing from self-sabotage and making the link between childhood trauma and my self-sabotage, it would be just actually the fact that I could write a damn book. I never thought I could do that. Yeah. It seems like such a big task. Yeah. What was the most difficult part out of all the steps you had to take? Where did you encounter the most resistance or self-sabotage? Let me think about that because it's been so long since I started the process of writing the book. I think it's the not knowing how something's going to turn out. So this is a huge trauma response too, is needing to know the outcome, right? So having a lot of trouble pursuing something when you don't know how it's going to go. And I think that was the hardest part was sticking with a book. When you're writing a book, they have what they call kind of the marathon of the middle. So you start, you're going, you're writing away. And then it starts to really become a slog and mm. there's no reward and nobody's seeing it. You don't really know if it's going to be received, if it's ever going to see the light of day, but you still have to keep going with it, right? So I would say that was probably the most resistance that I had was just to keep going, even though I didn't know how it was going to turn out. Yeah. And then can you make any connections to that to your childhood? I mean, obviously that's something that I'm sure everybody struggles with to an extent, regardless of how their childhood was. But were there anything in writing the book that particularly struck a chord with maybe something that still needs to be healed? Yeah, there's that procrastination piece, which is, like you said, procrastination is something that everybody goes through. 
But when it is coming from a childhood trauma route, it's different. It feels really impossible to get through. You know, it feels like something that's much bigger than you. It's not something you can just talk yourself through or out of. It just feels insurmountable. And I did have a bit of that. There's just so many like seemingly logical reasons not to continue this project, right? And that's the procrastination that is actually trying to protect us. It's that inner child trying to protect us, right? From the pain that might ensue if we do finish this project. So yeah, the procrastination piece was definitely a big one. And I actually think that is something I have overcome. And this writing this book, doing this project was a big part of that. I feel like if I could write a book and have it published, get the publisher, do all the things I had to do, I almost feel like there's no goal that I can't achieve at this point. Because I think part of me felt like that's one that I didn't know if I could actually complete. And that's why I'm not that obsessed with like how it does or how it sells. Like we were just talking before we came on the air here about, I have no idea how it's doing because you don't really get those stats from your publisher until later. And for me, that's almost not the point. The point is that I did the process. I stuck with it. I made the dream come true. I know it's going to help people because I've already received the feedback, right? So that baby is out there and that's what matters. That's so inspiring. Yeah, I'm getting so sick of my procrastination and self-sabotage stuff and really trying to figure out like where, what is this rooted in? I mean, you listen to the podcast, so you've heard me talk about it some, you know, I think one big aha for me was the connection between being still financially tied to my parents and feeling like how specifically my dad, like how does my dad show me love? if he's not financially supporting me, because that's really the only way that he's been able to show me love. I think that part of it is rooted in that I have to stay fucked up in a way to keep them safe and protected. Because when I acted out as a kid, that's when my mom really stopped drinking as much and my parents stopped fighting. But what I was thinking about yesterday, I was watching TV or something and someone was talking, it showed like a beautiful house or yeah, it was like somebody was showing like a very beautiful house. And the thought came in my mind and it was very noticeable that like, I could never achieve that on my own. And it's like, where is this coming from? You know, because it's not that I don't think I'm not capable. It's that I don't think that I'll ever be able to get myself in gear enough to get the success that I really want. And it's just really interesting to think about like where, what is the root of that? Like, what were the subconscious messages that I received in that? Because I'm more than capable. And so it makes me really sad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's amazing how these roles that we're in in the family can really stick with us. And is there any fear of losing your father's love if you were self-sufficient? You know, it's like clearly but not on a conscious level, you know? And I think on the same level, my parents want nothing more than for me to be financially independent and successful. Although I'm sure there is a part of them too, not conscious, but that does want me to need them in some way, right? Because I almost feel like me needing their help in some form allows them to kind of stay in a little bit of denial in the reality of their situation. Yeah, absolutely. That's 100% true. And I'm glad you said that it might not be conscious because all this family dynamic stuff is often subconscious. So even parents that think they have their child's best interests in mind are doing things that are very much not in their best interests. And it's usually connected to a need to keep the system going the way it is, even when it's not working for everybody, right? And the reason for that is that the system is all they know. And so if we're not going to be going by this system anymore, what is that going to look like? And that's the fear of the unknown. So we'd rather stay in a system that's not working or at least not working for everybody instead of risking changing because we don't know what change is going to look like. We know what this is, this toxic thing that's happening. So we can operate within it. But if you ask me to change, that's terrifying, right? And I'd say the majority of people are in that mindset. Change is terrifying. And that's why usually in a family system like this, there's only one person who wants to change. You could have a clan of like 20 people and there's only one who wants to change because most people are afraid of it. 
Yeah, it's scary as hell. The other mm. thing that just came to me too is I wonder if part of it is me embodying my mom in the sense that she's never been able to like achieve sobriety and kind of had all the resources at her fingertips. I wouldn't say like skill is the right word to use, but I think that she possesses everything inside of her to achieve sobriety and hasn't and kind of has just been a like a bystander to her own life. Would you say that she has a kind of helplessness to her? Yeah. Yeah. And would you say that her feminine is like overgrown or is, is more prominent? No, which is interesting. You know, those are kind of the confusing messages like with my mom in the sense that like she was always somebody that was women can take care of themselves and support themselves and they can work. And yet she ended up staying home with me. And she, even though she was the alcoholic, I would say that my dad was like kind of the more abusive one in the relationship. And so many times she said she was going to get a divorce and didn't. And so it was very mixed messages in the sense that what she modeled to me was that like she couldn't take care of herself or that she couldn't survive without my dad, even though the words were very different. And so I think that that's ingrained a message in me and that like I need to, I think that's largely why I've always felt like, okay, it's not just that a relationship is my ticket to happiness. It's like a relationship is how I'm going to survive because how can I possibly take care of myself on my own? Mm-hmm. This is really interesting. Yeah. So your dad is very much put up as kind of like the financial savior. And then you're associating men with that rescue, that like financial rescue. To be relying on someone else to provide it is, you know, that's not the right motivation. It's not healthy. It's not going to work. It's not going to no. work. Yeah, for yeah. sure. So Yeah, it's interesting. Just as we're talking now, I think I'm realizing how much more, I think the reason that I've not really seen it this way is because I have been able to achieve sobriety, but I do think that there is a lot of me that has taken on aspects of my mom to the extent that maybe I don't realize. Yeah. And you know what? I can relate to that a little bit, Andrea, because my mother, she has this mental illness and she was very erratic and very emotionally unstable and Sometimes, and she was moving around a lot. And like, I move around a lot. Like I have a very sort of a life that's very much in flux. Like when we talked last time, I was in Tampa where my business is based. And I remember you said that you had an O Canada moment because I'm Canadian and I'm in Toronto now. Like I'm sitting in Toronto. Well, no, I'm just in Toronto to take a course that I can only do in person at U of T. But the the point is, like, I'm always moving around. And so when I do that, I feel like, oh, am I being like my mother? And that can be a little bit scary. And then that's another thing my father held against me. That's why my father never liked me, because I he thinks I'm like my mother. Like, I look like my mother. He thinks I act like my mother. Which, if you look at it on the surface, we're very different. But he has always held that against me. So sometimes I almost feel panic thinking, am I being like my mother? Mm. And then as what we resist persists. So if we're trying not to be like our mothers, like we make a vow, we're not going to be like our mothers. Guess what we're going to be like? Yeah, it's a little scary. I'm going to start, I think starting tomorrow with my therapist, we're going to start doing more like internal family systems work. Have you done any, any of that? Oh, Andrea, I love that. So for the first time, I did a one-time, one-hour meditation with a level three IFS practitioner over Zoom, and it freaking changed the whole game. Really? Uh, when was you this? You go so deep. This was probably two months ago. Okay, do tell. Very recent. And they go so deep that it is into your subconscious. It is so far beyond talk therapy. It's not talk therapy. You don't even talk. He just go, he just goes, he said, what do you want to focus on? He just goes right into the meditation. Your eyes are closed. You're like on a different level. You're deep and you go really with the inner child. It's like you're there. I was back in when I was two to three years old, having to take care of my sister who was a baby because my parents wouldn't get out of bed. 
And I never realized the impact that had on me. I knew Mm -hmm. that was messed up. I didn't realize the impact it had on me and how it changed kind of fundamentally what I knew about myself. And what I found out was that my primary fear was not what I thought it was. Even in romantic relationships and everything, my primary fear I thought was rejection. And it, but that never felt real to me. Like I didn't feel like if I got rejected, say ghosted by like a a dating prospect, it wasn't rejection I would feel. It was something else. And what I found out from the meditation is that my deepest fear is humiliation or Mm. embarrassment. And so my real fear was that that person on the other end was laughing at me. That's my deepest fear. And I just never knew that about myself. So in that, I realized my deepest fear is not what I thought it was. And now I know what it is. How did that come up through the meditation? Yeah, it comes up through the meditation. It's all intuitive. It's all feeling. It's almost Mm -hmm. something you can't put into words. You feel it. And you are really there with that child. I saw the images. I saw the house. I saw the space between the two, like my parents' bedroom and my sister's bedroom. And I saw myself sitting there in between the two of them. I saw how like trapped I was and it was so real. I can't even explain it. It was so profound that he could do that in one hour. I think it was a little bit over one hour. He went a little bit over maybe 75 minutes. It was amazing. So I'm just saying level three practitioner, they will change your world. Was there something, so you said it was related to having to take care of your sister. Is that what you said? Yeah, because my parents wouldn't get out of bed. It started when I was, mostly it was because of drinking. Like they would both be too drunk on the weekend. They just didn't think they needed to get up and take care of their kid. And so it started with when I was the only kid before my sister came when I was two and a half. And they would leave the TV on the station that I could watch before they went to bed. And so I would just get up and turn on the TV and, and take care of myself. And then when my sister came, Nobody was getting up to take care of her either. So that became my job. But of course, when you're two and a half, three, nobody's telling you that. It's just something you take on because nobody else is doing it. I need to do this. So you can imagine the impact that had on me as a little one. And this continued. I had to take my sister to school. I had to get her ready. Like I had to do all this stuff. And this continued into adulthood where my sister said she looked at me as her mother. Mm -hmm. I didn't want that. I didn't want that role that was foisted on me. And she said she and this came out too as she what's the word expected support from me unconditionally and did not give it back in return. She expected me to give her everything and she did not give me support in return. And that's what you set up a lifetime of that. And I know a lot of eldest siblings deal with that or older siblings in the birth order. And that is something that's even sanctioned by society, that the oldest sibling Mm -hmm. should be taking care of the younger one. And that's sort of lauded as something heroic. But it can become quite dysfunctional, and it can really mess up the sibling relationship. Because at this point, my sister and I do not have a relationship because Mm -hmm. it was so one-sided. I just wasn't getting anything out of it anymore. Yeah. And it's not like she made a conscious choice to have the dynamics be that way either. Yeah. hundred percent. She couldn't see any other way. So you mentioned when we first, before we started to actually record about just more like romantic stuff coming up, was there something that prompted you to want to do this session with this IFS guy? Yeah, it was about something to do with dating because I had What was it exactly? You know what it was? It was me knowing that I'm choosing people who won't commit and kind of doing it on purpose. Like I had chosen to spend time with someone who was just traveling through, right? He was from the States and I'm in Toronto right now. And so the choice that I make to spend time with people who are not going to be around and how I might say to myself, oh, I can't find someone who wants to commit, but it's me who's choosing people because of my own fear of commitment, right? I can kind of psychoanalyze myself and see that that's going on. So it's kind of trying to get to the bottom of that, what's going on there. 
And somehow through that, we got to this meditation where I got had this profound realization. They'll tell you another thing that happened recently, because I'm dating quite a bit. And one thing I'll tell you is that Toronto is a lot bigger than Tampa. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot more opportunity. There's just so many more people here that there's a lot more opportunity to go on dates, right? And what I found was the level of chemistry with people who are not good for me. And even after doing (laughs) all the work that I've done, I've been doing this work for so long and coaching other people on it, by the way. But still, that chemistry with people Mm -hmm. who are like my father, which means they are emotionally detached, not interested in me, not paying me attention, is so bizarre. It's just so bizarre. And to realize that just because you know something intellectually doesn't mean your body is going to stop creating that chemistry with this person who is recreating trauma for you from your childhood. It was really interesting. I had to really talk myself down from the ledge with that. And by the way, the other person has the same chemistry in this case, And whatever's going on for them, when they encounter me to create that chemistry, there's something super toxic going on, right? And yet your body is telling you, oh, this is amazing. This is the best thing ever. But the truth is that this is a trauma bond. This is a trauma bond that's only going to create more pain and keep you from what you really want. So the way I had to talk myself out of going out with him was I sort of got one of the hardest things I've ever done. So talk about the realization of that this person is toxic for me. After how many dates? Right away? First day? Couple dates? As soon as I saw right away, the chemistry was there. Now, mind you, he was a handsome man. He was my type and he was handsome and all of that stuff. But the level of chemistry on both sides was not normal for some people who had just met. And he's the one who stated it at the end of the date. He kind of said, I've never had chemistry like this. And I thought, yeah, it's really strong. And then I started to think, but this guy barely even looks at me. He hasn't asked me one thing about myself. I don't find him very interesting, you know. I kind of think he sounds like a bit of an asshole. Like, what is going on here? And I had to really face the fact that, yeah, this is your father. (laughs) This is your father in a much nicer package. And so did you go on another date with him? I did not. But I kept in touch with him a little bit over text. And but I eventually did not. Yeah. Looking back on like prior to meeting him, Like, were there any red flags like prior to actually going on the first date that you now see? During the date, were there any red flags? No, prior to, like prior to actually meeting him. It was so quick. I just met him on a dating app. And because we lived in the same neighborhood, he just said, let's meet up at the art gallery. And we just met up at the art gallery. And it was just so quick. There was nothing to have a red flag about prior. Although, no, wait, I'm wrong. There was a red flag. It was that he brought up sex Mm. before we met. So yeah, that Mm. was a red flag. And I remember Mm -hmm. seeing that red flag, but still being open to going out with him only because he was handsome, which is really sad. Did you tell him as far as not going out again? Yeah, we kind of came to that conclusion. You know, what it was, was that he wasn't meeting my standard for because I have standards now, thankfully. He wasn't meeting my standard for what I expect from like a dating prospect. So he wasn't like arranging a date. He wasn't Mm. making a plan, all of Mm -hmm. that stuff. So I finally, after a lot of back and forth, I think I just said, I don't remember. This is probably not going to work out or this is not the way I view dating or something like that. And so let's just go our separate ways. That's so good. Yeah, I'm proud of myself that I have my standards, but I was still kind of befuddled. I was still kind of like shocked at the level of chemistry from someone that I know is not good for me. That part really made me see how deeply embedded in our bodies trauma is. And it should have just reaffirmed for me what I already know. But I think I like to feel like I've done so much healing that I wouldn't be affected by these things. And that that's not true. It just showed me that this healing is ongoing and there's always more to be revealed. Yeah. And you know what? It might not be realistic to think that that's ever going to go away completely. 
And then the sad thing, Andrea, does this mean that when I have chemistry, that's always going to be a red flag? Exactly. That's the worst thing. It's like, do I have to think that this person is like a complete, but like dud for me to go on a second date with them? Right. Yeah. I think for me, it's the emotional unavailability that I'm like, come here. (laughs) let me try and win you over yes yes win your love it's not fun no I don't Mm -hmm. know I mean I think it is I don't know if I think that if there is that really 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 strong chemistry it probably means run for the hills Mm -hmm. which is so unfortunate because it feels so good no it does have there been any second dates since that date like with new people Oh, yeah. I've had several dates. I date quite regularly. I met this guy. The one coming through from the States was from Texas. And I love that accent. He was halfway there with that accent. And there was never any, you know, I chose him because he was only going to be here for a few days. So there's nothing really there. But that did make me question why would I choose to spend time with someone who's only here for a few days? And again, very strong connection. I would say very strong chemistry and someone who is also very commitment phobic. Although in that situation, it didn't really matter if he was commitment phobic because he was leaving and I knew that. But just the comments like he's never been in a relationship longer than 18 months, things like that. The red flags come out. He prefers strangers and because they're more honest. These were the comments that were coming up. So if... If it had been something that was going to go on, these things would have started to come up, right? Mm -hmm. It's so interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so have you been able to make a strong connection to that fear of humiliation there? Like, Yeah. I, I don't really honestly know, Andrea. That was such a huge, un, a huge reveal for me to find out that my deepest fear was not rejection, but humiliation or embarrassment. Like the fear that somebody would be laughing at me is worse than the fear of being rejected. That's always what it was about. So I think there was a feeling that connected to my always having to have the upper hand in a relationship, always having to be kind of the cool one, so to speak, the one who cares less, that would prevent me from being laughed at or made fun of by someone else. And that, of course, prevented intimacy. Another connection that I've been able to make is related to, so like in the seventh grade is when I became like the school slut and I didn't have any friends anymore. And so then that's when I met like my first boyfriend, although we didn't start dating for real until the ninth grade. But, you know, every day I went to school and I didn't have any friends and I'm being teased and bullied. And the only thing that got me through those experiences was knowing that like that night I was going to sneak out of the house and meet up with this boy and get stoned, you know? And that was like my saving grace was just like knowing that I had that. And then in ninth grade, when we started dating for real, like I made him my whole world. And and then when he got sent away to a boarding school, I mean, I had stopped hanging out with all of my friends. And so I think anytime I get into a relationship, those old patterns within me get triggered, even though I I do a better, I don't ditch all my friends like I did when I was a teenager, when I get into a relationship, I don't do that. But I do think that that, that savior piece, that switch gets ticked off within me that like this person is my life support when it's not just a connection solely to like love and attention, but I, there's also a connection to like drugs and alcohol too, even though I'm sober, mm-hmm. but yeah, it is. It's I, I think avoiding it's- reality right? It's escaping reality. And there's a couple of things I want to ask you because I knew the school slut. I was friends with her in grade seven. And then another one, I was the boyfriend of her brother. So I remember her, my boyfriend, his sister was quote unquote, the school slut. And what they had in common was they were always virgins. The school slut was always a virgin. Really? Does that resonate? No. I mean, when I got that reputation, I mean, I hadn't had sex yet, but I mean, right. I just gave a blowjob, but that was it. It was just that one yeah. incident. It was just that one time. It always has nothing to do with what's actually going on. And, you know, I thought it was going to make me cool. That's why I did it. The The good news with that is, well, not the good news, but that was so traumatizing to me that I didn't, I wasn't like a total hoe bag, like during my drinking because of that incident, mm-hmm. you know, like compared to my friends that I got sober with. I mean, I've had way less sexual partners than they ever did, but God. 
I still just think about how I had to, to protect myself, but like, you would think I would just go to school every day with just like this, such like fear and dread and shame. And I really just numbed myself out to it. I just really acted like this is what I want. This is what I chose. I'm leaning into this role. God was that it breaks my heart. Yeah, it does. That's how we protect ourselves. The ways we protect ourselves are very heartbreaking. Do you have like the anxious attachment style? Oh, hell yeah. Okay, because I was disorganized. And then as I healed, I kind of moved into avoidant. And it's interesting because what I, (laughs) but you shouldn't be because listen to my stories. Does it sound any better? I don't know. Um, Tiffany and I, but I I just feel like avoidance sounds like in the moment, less painful. Yeah, but it's also less intimacy. I know. Less emotion, you know, less chance for connection. But it seems like less emotional flashback, like wanting to fucking die in the moment. (laughs) Less humiliation. Is that what you're saying? The thing I've always been avoiding? No, just like, yeah, well, yeah, just the emotional flashbacks. I feel like, God, just that fear of abandonment and being in that pain. I mean, I'd, yeah, I know, I know they're all bad. I think there's more fear that you've missed out that if you had said what you really feel maybe you mm-hmm. would have got what you wanted that's mm. the avoidant that i experienced that I just what if i had expressed myself what maybe i would have got something more and but then at the same time not being able to do that because the comment that i would always get from friends is you're great you when you go out with someone you never drop your friends I was kind of the opposite because I was determined to show this person that they don't matter that much to me. One of the, I didn't get to read the whole thing, but I wanted to talk some about your chapter that's about self-imposed isolation. Is that something that you struggled with a lot? Yeah, I would say not as much now, but in the past I did. That is something that we do when social interactions become too exhausting and too painful. So we're often told by society and by experts that you need to get out there. You need to make connections, right? But when you grow up with childhood trauma, your sense of self is very fractured. And there are lots of reasons for that. And the main one is that you didn't get what you needed from your caregivers. So caregivers are supposed to help you develop your sense of self by showing you that you have a safe place to come back to after you're finished exploring the world Showing you your strengths and weaknesses, kind of mirroring back to you what you're good at, praising you when you do a good job, giving you age-appropriate tasks to help you grow, supporting you with through your emotions, all those kind of things. So a lot of your listeners and you and I probably didn't get a lot of those things, right? So that leads to a self that is underdeveloped or not developed at all, because instead of developing ourselves, the inner child becomes hypervigilant. So -hmm. what that means is that it's always on guard for threats instead of being curious and open and exploring the world because it has the safe place to come back to. Instead, it has become its own parent, but it's totally unequipped to do that because it's a child with no skills and nobody's giving it any skills, right? So it's doing the best it can to stay safe in what it views as a very dangerous world where it's all on its own. So you're in this and experts and people are telling you, go out and connect from this place, this empty sense of self that's completely outward looking, grasping for some validation to fill up this hole inside. Go and make connections. It's kind of ridiculous if you think about it. So we go out into social situations, as an example, and people from healthy homes would have the intact sense of self. So they would go, the healthy inner child, they would go into a situation like that and they would feel open, curious, what's going to happen? I see this with my kids, especially my older daughter, who's more of an extrovert. She is so excited to go out. What's going to happen? Who am I going to meet? What's going to go down? It's going to be so much fun. Whereas if you come from this place of childhood trauma, you're going in almost like you're going into battle. Like you could ask all those questions, but in a very scary way. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know who these people are. They're going to hurt me. I need to protect myself. Every neutral face looks like it's judging you. And so you just do everything you can to try and please people 
You might be always listening instead of talking about yourself because in your experience, having opinions or centering yourself in the conversation would get you in trouble. So you stay quiet, you stay small, or maybe on the flip side, you've developed a fake persona where you're the life of the party, but it's not really who you are. And all these things that keep you detached from yourself, you're abandoned from yourself, you're not connecting with other people at all. So you feel robbed, you might even feel violated. You certainly don't feel fulfilled. And so after enough of this, you just decide, you know, it's a lot easier to be alone. And that's where the self-imposed isolation comes in. And this can happen also in romantic relationships, since we've been talking about that, because thinking about women who are looking for a man to fill them up, to give them what they can't give themselves and then not receiving it, or if they've been ghosted or if they've had the bad experiences, because really being ghosted is nothing. It's it's just like, that's not the one for you. If you're in the right mindset, you're going to be happy to be ghosted because that's weeded itself out. And now I'm one step closer to finding the one that's right for me. But instead, it's like, let me take myself off these apps. Let me pull myself out of the dating pool. I've had enough of this. This is too painful. And we isolate again. Yes, we do. Oh, I know. It's, yeah, it really just the reactions that we have, like in situations like being ghosted. And it's just, it's like you said, with how consciously we, we know something, but just the trauma stored in the body and how powerful it is. It's really, I think I just continue to be blown away just at the, the power of all of this. Mm -hmm. Because it's like it lays dormant until it has an opportunity to show itself. So that crazy instance of the chemistry with this person I didn't really have an opportunity for that to come out until that happened, right? And so there it shows itself. That's why romantic encounters are such a great way to reveal these things to us. There there really is no such better opportunity. <laughs> yeah, if we can it's see so it fun. that way, right? If we can see it as a learning opportunity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Was there anything in particular that you feel like there is a misconception about that you wanted to particularly address in the book? A misconception about the book or Anything. about the topic? No, no, no. About the topic in the book or kind of like a common misconception in that area. Is that what you mean? Yeah. That's the reason I wrote the book because the biggest misconception <laughs> I saw in books on self-sabotage is there seemed to be two camps with the self-sabotage books. And one of them was they'd be written by lay people who had overcome self-sabotage themselves and they did it in a way that was very much a tough love approach toward themselves. So pull yourself up, change your habits, change your thoughts, stop fucking yourself, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And then the other side was sort of more like clinical psychologists who were going through patients that they had worked with and research that they had done. And this is how you approach this topic, even though I haven't really been through it. Here's what works for my clients. And these seem to be the two. And neither of those resonated with me. The tough love never worked for me because being mean to yourself, in my opinion, does not work. It didn't work for me. And then that clinical approach for me would work for a short time because we're talking about controlling your thoughts when actually this stuff is stored in your body. So it can work mm -hmm. for a short time. But as soon as you drop your guard, I suppose, or stop doing all the things perfectly, you're going to go back into your old patterns because those are stored in the body. So what's needed instead of changing habits and changing thoughts is a transformation on the inside. So what I found works for me is something relatively new, and it's a Buddhist concept, and it's been championed by a psychologist from the University of Texas named Kristen Neff. Yep. She's devoted her life to this and it's called mindful self-compassion. So that is at the core of what this book is about. In essence, the healing strategy behind my book is mindful self-compassion. And that is simply comforting yourself through whatever you're feeling. Instead of the very prominent advice to change your thoughts, talk yourself out of things, tell yourself the truth of what's going on. 
your body doesn't care about logic. Your body doesn't care about the reality of things. It just knows how it feels because your nervous system has been hijacked. It's in this fight or flight response that started in childhood and it doesn't know that you're safe now. So you have to, instead of trying to talk your body out of something, you have to give it comfort. You have to let it know that it's safe here. And you have to let the inner child know that you are the adult now and you will take care of it. So I just come at it instead of tough love, it's about self-comfort and self-compassion. That is what it's all about. And that is a very surface level explanation, but that is the essence of what I'm getting at that I believe makes the book different from what else is out there. What have been the most impactful like self-compassion practices that you've used? It has simply been feeling my feelings and not trying to change them. It's been accepting whatever I feel and not trying to change it because you would be amazed when you finally simply accept whatever you're feeling how you may have never done that before. Mm -hmm. So when you have a feeling, like for me, disappointment was a big one. I didn't allow myself to feel. And that was because in childhood, nobody helped me with that feeling. That was a very scary feeling to have. And I avoided it. I would avoid it by saying this was how it was supposed to be. It's better that it turned out this way. You could, you should have done something different and then the outcome would be different, which is absolutely not true. We have no idea of knowing if things would be different if we did something a different way. So finally allowing myself, and I can remember being in the shower when I felt this, really felt it. Because when I first started studying self-compassion, it was many years ago, like eight years ago or something. And I had it on the head level. I had the intellectual stuff but it had to make its way into my body. And that's by really feeling it. It's embodied practice. And so I forced myself to feel disappointment over something that had happened and to not talk myself out of it and to simply comfort myself through it. And that was really profound. And that is reparenting yourself because you think about a child, if they came to you with a difficult emotion, like a little child, it could be your own if you have children. And it says, I'm feeling sad. How would you respond? Would you respond the way you usually do to yourself, which is to maybe eat too much ice cream or say, get over it. It's not that bad. Look at how bad other people have it. Would you really say that? Because this is a child that you're dealing with inside of you that never got what it needed. So I just say, give that child what it needs now because it didn't get what it needed back then. And until it does get what it needs from you, it is going to keep grabbing for your attention. It's going to keep trying to get your attention in this way. It just needs you to comfort it. We, um, in ACA, they have a, it's like a newer book. It's called the Loving Parent Guidebook. I don't know if you've seen it, but we're going through it in my community. And we just started going through the chapter that's on the inner critical parent. and. One thing that I've noticed for myself is that because I think that it's, I'm not somebody who I didn't experience verbal abuse. And so sometimes I think it's harder for me to identify that this is my inner critical parent berating me or talking to me right now, because it's not messages that I specifically heard from my parents. And I just realized that I need to be through reparenting. I need to be responding to those voices and those messages in a more accepting and compassionate way in in the sense of like, and it talks about this in the chapter about how, you know, those voices, those messages are rooted in a place of genuinely trying to protect us. Like it it really does think that it's protecting us from something. And for me, it's just like... Get, get lost. Like, just get out of here. As opposed to being like, I hear you. I understand that you're trying to do X, Y, and Z, but I got it now. And so that's just something that I'm hoping that I can start to recognize in the moment more. What has your process been of the awareness of when? Because I think that we get the the awareness that we're doing that and then kind of sit in that awareness before we're able to kind of catch it in the moment and start bringing in some of these reparenting tools in the moment. What has your journey been with that? 
It's sometimes scary to let go of the inner critic. And I like that you pointed out that we don't want to be shooing it away because the inner critic is a part of us that is trying to protect us, just like you said, because it believes that if it's not being mean to you, that you'll never accomplish anything. So the fear in letting go of that inner critic can be that what's going to motivate me. But the great thing about this research that Kristen Neff has been doing with the self-compassion is that she's actually proven that that inner critic is not motivating, that actually being nice to yourself is more motivating than that. So there, I think that's helpful because sometimes we need proof. We don't have the proof that if we drop the inner critic, we're going to be okay, that we're, our life is not going to fall apart and we're not going to lose our home and our job and all of that stuff, right? So if there's evidence now, which there is, that actually it doesn't work, and you can even just think about it in your life. If being mean to yourself worked, how come you don't have everything you want, right? <laughs> yeah. Let's try something else. That's so true. Yeah. It's, hmm. I don't even know if I think that might, I feel like my critical voice is keeping me from getting shit done. I don't feel like it's motive. I don't know. That's how to good because you're like right. The opposite. You're right. It is. Mm. So what are you working on now? What course are you taking? I'm at U of T, University of Toronto, which is my alma mater. I graduated from there and now I've gone back to do a program in Buddhism and psychology. So you see the Buddhism. I'm really into that now. The mindfulness piece, especially as it relates to psychology. So I'm doing, finishing that up. This is my last course in that program. And I'm also doing my coaching. I do private coaching. That's the bulk of what I do now. I do my weekly blog as often as I can. I try to do it every week. Sometimes I miss. And I'm, I've actually decided to, I was going to do another retreat in November to lead into the Christmas season, but I decided to Uh postpone till spring because the response I was getting from people I approached was that it's way too busy. So I just said, let's just do it in the year when it's not as busy. But I want to do something for my audience to help them into the Christmas season or the holiday season, because that's such a tough time for dysfunctional Mm -hmm. family survivors. So I'm going to do some type of event or something to support them. And then I'm working on a group program. So I've got this course that's very in-depth and I've beta tested it already, but I haven't really done a big launch or a big release. And I think it's because I've been wanting to do something with it. So what I'm going to do is take a group through that course and do some coaching with it. And so I'm working that out and we'll have that in November sometime available. I want to circle back with you about this mindfulness piece, because it's something we were actually talking about in my inner loving parent group. And I think that I feel like the word is overused perhaps. And so I kind of feel like it's corny. Which word is that? Mindfulness. Yes. I feel like it's overused. Yeah. It's also, it's very simple. And that's the thing. It's almost so simple. That's what makes it hard, right? So mindfulness by definition is simply accepting the present moment without judgment. That's it. And that includes your thoughts and feelings. What does your practice of mindfulness look like? It's, well, for me, I do meditation. I'm really big into meditation. That means I either do guide. What is your meditation practice? It varies. I can have periods where I meditate for an hour in the morning and in the evening, but not everybody can sit still, right? So your meditation can be a walking meditation. Your meditation can be a workout that you pay attention to instead of listening to music until it's over. Is anything where you're paying attention to what's going on in the moment without judging it? It can look like many different things, but the main thing about it is that you are not rejecting what's going on, Mm -hmm. which is what most of us do almost all the time. Mm -hmm. When you sit for an hour, are you sitting silently? I have. I'm not in a period right now where I'm doing that but I have gone through long periods where I've done that. Right now, my practice is more like 20 minutes in the morning. And I'm not as good at night. Like I do meditation very easily in the morning, but I'm not as good at night. So often I won't do an evening meditation, but in the morning I must, even just to set myself up for the day. And are you doing breath or what? Nothing or what? Sometimes I just set the alarm for 20 minutes and just sit there. 
and allow the thoughts to come, allow the feelings to come and whatever comes, comes. And that's part of the acceptance. And it's sometimes beautiful things come up, answers to questions that have been confounding you, just options that you didn't think were there. Things will just come because your inner wisdom is so, it knows so much more than your mind does, right? And then I might also do a guided meditation. I like to do even abundance meditation. So inviting in good things and I'll have a guided meditation through that. It varies. Well, everyone needs to get your book because everybody in my audience would benefit greatly from reading this damn thing. Let me just read to you some of the chapter title, folks, because it's our shit. We got, okay, let's see here. We got attachment style stuff. We have family scapegoating, boundaries, dealing with toxic people, overcoming negative self-talk, adopting healthy coping mechanisms. What is this letting go of escape fantasies? What are we, I haven't gotten to that chapter yet. Oh, what are we talking that about? is a good one. I wish we had time to go into it, but that is about something called maladaptive daydreaming. We can talk about it. Yeah, sure. This is something that people who deal with it often think they are the only people in the world that deals with it. But this is something that millions of people go through. This is different than regular daydreaming. This is daydreaming that has people in a fantasy world for hours and hours of their waking lives. And it prevents them from living their real lives because they're in a fantasy world. And what it does is it, it meets the needs that were not met as a child. So it'll often be where they are the center of the daydream and they are someone who's very loved and very recognized and even famous, like they could be a famous athlete. Yes. So I have somebody in my community who really struggles with this and it's related on to becoming a rock star. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. And so because your needs for love and attention were not met in real life, you meet them inside your head. And this creates this escape world that becomes more interesting or more intriguing than your real life. So you invest all your energy into this fantasy world, and then your real life is not getting the attention that you need to actually improve it. And interestingly, mindfulness is one of the healing processes. So the guy who coined this phrase, maladaptive daydreaming, is a psychologist in Israel called Dr. Eli Somer. He's dedicated his life to this, and he developed a program based on the mindfulness, what is it called? The eight-week MBSR, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Program. And so over eight weeks, he took people struggling with this through a mindfulness program, and a lot of them were cured. So a, wow. a significant amount of them, whatever significant means, that's meaningful in these studies we're no longer meeting the criteria for maladaptive daydreaming. So mindfulness does work. Huh, is that something that you've struggled with or what, what made oh, you yeah. want to have a chapter about that? Oh yeah. Anything in there I have struggled with too. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm putting myself out there. I'm fully exposing myself. Yeah. Mm. Well, thank you for all that you do. Thank you too, Andrea. I'm so delighted that I got to spend this time with you again. Me too. 